we are tackling a large piece of scripture. Over the next two Sundays, I get the privilege of walking us through the life of Joseph. Joseph's life takes up 15 chapters of the book of Genesis. Starts in Genesis 37, goes really right through the end of the book, chapter 50. When I was talking to my daughter, uh, just telling her what was going on, I said, yeah, I'm going to do two 30-minute sermons on the life of Joseph. And she said, I guess you won't be doing the musical version. <laughs> For anybody that's seen Joseph in the Technicolor, you know, that was a family favorite for us, and we'd go and watch that. Yeah, this will be condensed, obviously. You have homework. If you want to really know the rest of the story, all the stuff that we're not covering, take your Bible, read Genesis 37 through to chapter 50. If you haven't been doing that, following us along in the book of Genesis, uh, you can cover all that. All we will really be doing these couple of Sundays is putting some context around the life of Joseph, uh, highlighting in a few events, important events in his life, and really ultimately seeing how God's blessing in that big picture is a help and an, uh, an encouragement to me. As I started into this study, for some reason, I mean, I've read the book of Genesis, I don't know how many times, but it never really dawned on me until I was kind of trying to break down some sections and thinking about Joseph, that the life of Jacob, do you realize it starts in chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, and it goes through to chapter 50? Half of the book of Genesis is really about Jacob and about his life. Because even the passages that we're going to be talking about today from Genesis 37 to 50 is really the account of Jacob. It's the finishing off of his life story, although it's about his kids, but it's his kids and the fulfillment of what God is doing. And in a sense, that's the overarching theme of the book of Genesis. It's his plan, it's his purpose to bring his creation to bring his created people back into relationship with himself. Because after the fall, Adam and, Eve and they, Adam and Eve, as they were cast out of the garden, God had to make plans for how he was going to bring humanity back into relationship with himself. And as he does that, he, he gave his covenants, and he gave his promises to his people. And the book of Genesis is really the story of God's faithfulness. It's God at work through this entire book, and it's his faithfulness through this sinful and broken people who learn to call on him, and those few that stand out who submit to his will and to his calling, and even to those who with almost with fear and trembling and in great brokenness submit to that will, which is really the story of Jacob, because a lot of the life of Jacob, we see a lot of brokenness in that man. And so as we enter into the story of Joseph, I don't want us to lose sight of that fact that it's really the story, the finishing of the story of Jacob. In fact, if you turn to Jake, uh, Jacob, J Genesis, wow, I'm going to have trouble, I can tell already. If you turn to Genesis 37, and just look at how that chapter starts. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Now this is the account of Jacob. Some translations say this is the account of Jacob's family line. That's a really interesting phrase that comes up very often in the book of Genesis. This is the account of someone. When you follow it, you have the account of Adam, you have the account of Seth, of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, and now the account of Jacob's family line. 
And as those accounts come up, very often you read the account, but you recognize very quickly it's really the fulfilling of their family, of what happens through them. Back in Genesis 25, you read in that chapter that it is the account of, the, of Isaac's family line. But it really is the beginning of Jacob's story. Right? It's the account of Isaac's line, but what happens is his wife gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. And through them, God's covenant is going to be made known. And those chapters 25 to 37 really are the story of Jacob and it's the story of Isaac, uh, Isaac's covenant with God being brought to completion as Jacob finally finds his place of obedience in faith with God. And that's very much at the end of his life. Derek was walking that through with us last week. And so what we're really seeing is the way that God proves himself through his people. His messed up, complicated, sinful people. And we're led through how God fulfills his covenant. How his promises to Abraham that he would become a great nation and he would have a land and through him all peoples on this earth are going to be blessed. How those promises God works at to fulfill and brings to completion. And remember another thing. This is Moses writing. Moses writes the first five books, the Pentateuch. And as he's writing these, it's going to be during the time of Israel being brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, around the time of Mount Sinai, and all the completion of that. And he's writing to the nation of Israel to remind them who they are. He's writing to remind them who God is making them to be. He wants them to know their story. And as he does that, it's so that they can understand how God is at work in and through them. And so you see all of the warts and the problems of God's people, and you see God's faithfulness with them through this whole time. And so in this chapter 37, as we begin, it's important to understand we're seeing the culmination of the promises to Jacob, that Jacob's family line and how the covenant is going to be brought to fruition through him. And the main character, surprisingly, that's going to fulfill all of this and really maintain the covenant is Joseph. And it's surprising that Joseph would be this key player through whom God's faithfulness is going to be made known. Joseph, do you remember the birth wars we walked through several weeks ago? Joseph is son number, do you remember what number he was? Say it out loud if you know. Eleven, right? Son number 11 of 12. His brother Benjamin is going to be born, we're not quite sure, probably a couple of years later. He's son number 11. He's at the lowest part of the totem pole. I mean, he's not the one that you would expect to be rising up. In fact, as you think back through Israel's history, if you're that aware, you would, you would almost think Judah should be the one. Judah is being set apart as the tribe through whom royalty is going to come. But it's not. It's Joseph. Joseph is the one being prepared for God to complete his work and his covenant through. So think about Joseph, because at the beginning of chapter 37, the next part of the says, Joseph, a young man of 17. So what happened in those 17 years of Joseph's life? Here's just a, just a quick summary. 
So far in his life, at the end of uh, the birth wars, Joseph is the firstborn child of Rachel. Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. Remember that whole story of Leah got in there first, but it was really Jacob that his heart desired. And he's the firstborn to Rachel after these 10 other brothers were born to three other women with Jacob. His household was a complicated mess. Four wives. And in that moment of his birth, though, Rachel's life came to a great moment of grace and faith, I believe. If you remember at Joseph's birth, it was God remembers her, God hears her, God listens to her. I think the brokenness of her life and not being able to bear children and all of those things weighed heavily on her until she finally cries out to God in an honesty and sincerity of faith, and God listens. And Rachel is the one who brings Joseph into this world and, and is the one who must be taking care of him mainly because of all the schisms in that household. So Joseph and his mother Rachel would have had time together. When Joseph was about five years old, Jacob then tried to get out from under Laban. If you remember all that story, there he is tending for his sheep and taking care of all of this, but their households are getting bigger. And so Jacob gathers his family together and they sneak off at night. And when Laban discovers it, he gathers his soldiers, kind of his household army, and they chase after them. And Joseph would have been a part of all that. Joseph was part of that family fleeing at night and remembering, I imagine, the great tensions of having Laban discovering them and catching up to them and the argument and the confrontation that takes place there. Jacob or Joseph would also remember that the next steps was they had to leave Laban but go to Canaan and meet up with Esau. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Meeting up with Esau. Esau comes out to meet them with 400 of his men. And Jacob doesn't know what's going to take place. And to protect himself and kind of try to allay some of the tensions with, es- with uh, his brother Esau, he sends out, do you remember, he sends the women and children out first. He says, you all go and meet him and then I'll follow you up. And so Joseph would have been a part of that band of people that had to go out and meet Uncle Esau. Imagine the stories and the tension and the wondering what was going to take place. The fear that would have been a part of all that. But also at that time, Joseph would have experienced Jacob being gone for a night. A night in which we read that he wrestled with God. And the next morning after that wrestling with God, Jacob returns to this family, broken in heart, limping, (laughs) because he's been touched in his hip. Jacob is a changed man. And Joseph, for the next several years, possibly 10 years, lived with Jacob in that kind of context. As they came and they settled in in Canaan. We're not told a lot about that, but it was Jacob coming to terms with who God is. And Joseph would have understood him and been with him during that time. In fact, it's during this time probably that Joseph becomes Jacob's favorite. He was a favorite just because he was Rachel's firstborn. 
But as he grew in that context, there were more things that start to happen. And I think Rachel and Jacob must have had quite a part to play in Joseph's life. Because when we meet up with Joseph, and if you're familiar with the story, all the stuff that's going to happen to him in chapters 37 to 39, I mean, there, there's just a, a mess of stuff that gets weighed upon this young man. And his response is faith. His response is to say, I will trust God. His response is to say, God will be lifted up and exalted in my life. Where did he get that from? Where did he understand the God of covenant, the God of glory in this way that gave him the strength and the ability to stand up against the persecution and the betrayal and all the things that were bringing upon him? I think it had to have something to do with the context in which he grew up. Jacob and Rachel sharing stories of God meeting them and blessing them. I share that just to say, take courage, parents. Take courage. You may have messed it up, but God can work through it. You may feel like, you know, you've, you've done everything wrong, but God can turn that around if at this point you will give glory and walk in faith before him. If you'll allow God to be seen through you that your kids can understand his, his presence and his glory and his grace in your hearts and your lives. Joseph somehow managed to find that out. His dad was Jacob, the deceiver, the liar. His mom was Rachel, who had battled with Leah, her sister. And terrible things took place within that family. And yet Joseph comes through, and as we will see, as a man of faith. So for 17 years, they've lived in Canaan, and things are about to change. I'm not going to read all of these passages, but some highlights. And so I begin just in chapter 37. Look at these first four verses that describe what happens. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, a colored robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. There's a lot going on in that opening verse. There's a lot that has created an incredibly intense animosity in this family. I mean, the hate that these brothers have for their brother Joseph is tangible. They feel it. There is a, they couldn't say a kind word about him. You know, there's that sense of when he was in the room, they just felt the tension. What's happening here? Surely it's something more than just Jacob has made him his favorite. Well, you need to read into that more than just, you know, there's a, a sense of bias or something. Jacob not only has made him his preferred son, but he has also made him the son to be the heir. Derek touched on this a little bit last week, but it's, it's also explained in 1 Corinthians 5. Something has happened in this family that is reminiscent of the Jacob and Esau birthright fiasco. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, 1 Chronicles is a listing of genealogies. 
And in those genealogies, it's kind of laying out, here's what Israel looks like and who's who and all those kind of things. And when you come to chapter 5 in 1 Chronicles, you read this. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. So Reuben was the firstborn of Leah, Jacob's first son. When you, uh, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, this was back in Genesis 35, and it's just kind of a one-line statement that after Rachel passed away, that Reuben went and slept with Bilhah the servant. And in doing that, Derek explained it last week, this was really an affront to the family. It was certainly an affront to Jacob, it was, a, it, was a, it was an attempt to take control. It was an attempt to be number one in the family. A great dishonor to Jacob. And so what happens here? When he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. Reuben lost his birthright as the first son. And not only that, but it's now given to Joseph, the firstborn of the favorite right, but number 11 in the list. So we just skipped all 10 other brothers. It wasn't like it went from Reuben to Simeon. It went all the way down to Joseph. And so now Joseph is the one who's managing the birthright. I think you see it in that opening verses when it says that he was there tending the sheep with the sons and the, of Bilhah and Zilpah. You know, he's there and he brings a bad report back. Why? Why is he bringing these reports back about the others? Because you see, he has a sense of oversight. It's not that just he was tattletailing. Sometimes you get that sense of Joseph and you say, oh, he was a bit of a whiner. He was all of that. Actually, in the story of Joseph, nothing negative is really reported about him. What he's doing is he's giving a report back to his father about the handling of the flocks. Why? Because as the heir, he has a purpose. As, as the one who is in control, he needs to do that. He's doing what is, is right and honoring his father. And it only adds more tension. It adds this great divide in this family. And this family, just the tensions rise and they boil to the surface that the other brothers just can't stand Joseph. And they have it in for him. And the rest of that chapter are about two dreams that Joseph has, which he shares with the family. He shares these dreams. I'll summarize them for me. The first dream he has is that they're out in the field and they're binding up sheaves of wheat. And as they're binding the sheaves of wheat, he says, in his dream, he says, my sheaf of wheat suddenly stood up in the middle and all of your sheaves of wheat bowed down to my sheaf of wheat. Now, I'm not a great interpreter of dreams. That's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you get it? Eleven sheaves, all of yours, bowed down to mine. Whoa, Joseph, what are you talking about? How do you have the gall to say that you are going to be the preeminent one, that you are the one that's going to rise up and even rule over the rest of us? And then he has another dream. Don't know how long it was between these. Was it the next night? Was it later in the day? 
But he has another dream, and he comes back after that bit of a fiasco, and he shares this dream. He says, you know what? This dream is about the sun and the moon, and 11 stars all bowed down to me. Again, it's not a very subtle dream. When you're in a family with 11 brothers, and you've got a mom and a dad, they can't believe it. Even Jacob in this one says, he rebukes Joseph and says, what is it? It's interesting, Jacob, though, in the rebuke, he says, do you think even your mother and I are going to bow down to you? But Jacob also ponders these things. It says that he keeps the matter in mind. Jacob's thinking something is going on here because dreams, they would understood, were coming from God. So on the one hand, there's this incredible tension in the family. On the other, Joseph is being blessed and encouraged in his role that he's going to have within this family. As the story goes on, the hate all boils over and the brothers start to look for ways to take Joseph out of the picture. In the rest of chapter 37, you have the story of how that came to be, that they got Joseph alone. He came out to check, the, uh, check on the sheep and the shepherds. They got him alone, and as they saw him in the distance wearing that incredibly beautiful robe that he wore, the symbol of being the, you know, the heir apparent in the household, the hate boiled over, and they said, let's do him in. Reuben steps in and says, yeah, don't, let's not kill him. Let's just put him into a pit. It would all seem like Reuben felt like he'd be able to rescue him and, and save him later. But what happens is some Midianite traders come along and the guy, the brothers get a great idea. Let's sell them. Let's make a bit of cash off them. Because selling them into slavery would be just as good as killing them. Selling them into slavery in Egypt, that was a short lifespan opportunity. And so they do that. They sell them for 20 shekels of silver. Doesn't sound like much, 20. It's actually 10 pounds. I looked that up. 10 pounds of silver. But it was the going rate for slaves who were about 17. Right? So it wasn't more or less. It was just that was the common pricing. So Joseph is sold as a slave and goes off into Egypt. And that's when we last see him. The brothers have to go home and tell something to Jacob. And so they make up the story. They kill a goat and they dip the coat in the blood. And they go home to Jacob and say, look what we found. And they deceive their father. It's the history of this family. is a story after story of deception and lying. And the brothers fall into that. And Jacob falls into a deep mourning and grieving that's going to last for several years. And the brothers have to bear the weight of that. Later in the story, you read just the weight that that put upon them. So Joseph is sold into slavery. And we don't hear from him. We come to chapter 38 then. 38's a chapter we're actually mostly skip, but I'll just make a, just a quick comment about it. It's funny how it fits into the story. It's the story of Judah. It's the story of Judah's son, Perez. Perez is born right at the very end of the chapter. It's after a very complicated and terrible relationship that Judah gets into. You know, but what happens is Perez is born here. And it's interesting that Moses felt it important to include this little piece of history. Moses felt you needed to, or Israel needed to know that in Judah's line, this is where Perez fit into this family line. What was to become the royal line? And in fact, what becomes the genealogy of Jesus? 
When you go to Matthew chapter 1, there's Perez. To me, as I read this chapter, I'm just amazed how God puts his word together. Moses, 1,400 years before Christ is going to be born, feels it important to include this, this really odd and terrible story of how Perez is born. But for some reason, he said, you need to know this, Israel. You need to know how Judah's line continues. And for us, we see that Christ's line, he has some of these characters of, the script, of Scripture in it that we wouldn't call sort of a holy and pure line, but it is who Christ was born through. Just a side note. We come back to Joseph in chapter 39. And very quickly as we tackle 39, like I said, there's only a couple of highlights we can really capture here. In chapter 39, Joseph is back in Egypt. He gets sold to the household of Potiphar, a very important man, captain of the guard. It was probably the palace guard. Pharaoh is almost secret police, you know, a very powerful individual. And when you think how slaves were sold, you've seen the movies, you've seen pictures, you know, there'd be a slave market. And out of all the slaves that were put up for auction on a particular day, somehow Joseph was chosen out. Now we read later that he was fine and he was a handsome young man. So maybe it was that. But there was something about him that made him stand out and Potiphar's household brought him in. And when you read the beginning of chapter 39, this is what we read there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. I mean, he prospered. The slave prospered. Joseph's faith begins to percolate out of the story at this point. I mean, how does a man prosper in a situation like that? Like Daniel, the story of Joseph is really only a positive reflection of his following God. You read on, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph's character blossoms in the presence of Potiphar's household. The slave becomes the household manager. Potiphar entrusts him with everything in his house. He's a man to be trusted. I think if we learn anything through the story of Joseph, we need to understand how faith works itself out. And I'd say there's probably at least three things that we learn about faith in the life of Joseph. And hopefully you'll take this home and ruminate it on it and we'll come back to it next week. The first is to understand how faith submits to God. Faith trusts that God knows what he is doing. Joseph sold into slavery. I mean, he could have arrived in Egypt as a rebellious young man. You know, against anyone that would try to put chains on him trying to escape, trying to flee, rebelling against it. He could have been complaining. 
He could have moaned and groaned. He could have been a broken individual after betrayal of his brother, his family. Can you imagine that feeling? That your family actually hates you so much that they tried first to kill you, but eventually they just sell you to forget about you. Joseph rises up from that. And I believe what you see is in his faith, a man submitting to God and saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't like this. But God, I will submit to you in it. And in that faith, I will trust that you're going to care for me and walk with me in this. And again and again in this chapter, you read the little phrase that God was with him. That God walked with him. That's faith. That's our faith. In fact, later on, Pharaoh identifies in Joseph. He says, is there any man that we can find that the Spirit of God resides in like this man? God's Spirit rests in Joseph. So that in faith he submits to God in the midst of the circumstances of his life. Secondly, after faith submits to God, faith honors God. Faith works out in our lives that says God will be given first place. And Joseph says, in everything I do in the context of serving this human master, it will be like I am serving my God. I will honor him with my life. I will honor him in the way that I serve within this household. And Potiphar recognizes it. Potiphar says there is a, something about this man that I can trust. Because he submits to God and he's honoring God. And then I think the last thing is that faith waits on God. Joseph was going to have to wait 13 years before events unfold that he becomes great in Egypt. Sorry, I'm kind of giving you the rest of the story. I think most of you already know it. But you see, faith says in Joseph's life, God, I will wait for what your timing is going to be. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to give my life back to you. Jesse, you and the team can come on back up as we wrap up here. You see, in this period for Joseph, he had to learn these great lessons of faith. In the end, it's going to all seem to backfire on him. I mean, the very next scene is the scene with Potiphar's wife who brings him into temptation, but he resists it. He submits to God, he honors God, and he waits on God. And he ends up in prison for it. He does all the right things and it keeps going down. Joseph's life is this life of he rises up and he's taken down. He rises up, he's taken down. But he will finally rise up. And God's covenant promises are going to be brought to be fulfilled in him. Can't help but wonder for ourselves. What's our faith measure like these days? What is it that we're known for? In our faith, are we submitting to God? What circumstances surround you that calls for, submit, for submitting to God and saying, God, I will just trust you. I don't like it, 
It isn't working out the way I thought it would, but I'm going to trust you that you'll walk with me through this. Or how are you honoring God? How are you letting his righteousness and holiness being seen in your life? Or maybe for you, it's just a faith that says, I need to wait on God until he works it out for me. Let's pray together. Father, as we work our way through the story of Joseph, we're not going to read every line. We're not going to be able to have time to kind of study every detail. But I pray that those big thoughts of his life would sink into us. That you are a God to be trusted. You are a God who is faithful to his promises. You, God, alone are holy and drawing us to yourself. May we discover this afresh as we continue on in the study of the wonder of your word that you gave to us through Moses in Genesis. Bless us, we pray. Amen.